Good. Well, a very warm welcome to the eighth meeting of uh, this academic year of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure for me to um, introduce Sophie Gibb as today's speaker. Sophie is reader in philosophy, not senior lecturer, as it says um, on the website, reader in philosophy at Durham University, where she acts as principal investigator for an AHRC network grant project on emergence and as leader of the Philosophy of Mind work group in the Durham Emergence Project. And her paper this evening reflects her interests in the intersection between metaphysics and the philosophy of mind, both areas on which she's published a great deal. The format will be the usual one. I shall um, invite Sophie to speak for between 45 minutes and an hour. Uh, we'll then have a brief break for tea or coffee, and after that, we'll have the question and answer session, which will take us through to about 7.15. So without further ado, let me invite Sophie to present her paper this evening, which is entitled Defending Dualism. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you, everybody, for, for coming along. Um, I'm afraid I'm old-fashioned. I don't do PowerPoint, so you've got a handout, and I will be reading um, my paper. Can everybody hear me? Okay, right. Um, in the contemporary mental causation debate, it's commonly assumed that interactive dualism must be false in virtue of the principle of the causal completeness of the physical domain. However, consideration of new dualist models of psychophysical causation reveal that it's far from clear that the completeness principle can be appealed to to provide a general argument against interactive dualism. Standard dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance take the causal role of mental events in the physical domain to be that of initiating a single physical event or set of physical events in the chains of neurophysiological causation that terminate in bodily movement. However, a number of recent interactive dualist accounts have abandoned this model. According to these accounts, mental events are causally relevant in the physical domain, but are not, not in virtue of causing any physical event. Whether the completeness principle presents a problem for them is questionable. In this um, paper, my focus is on the popular no-gap argument for the completeness principle and why it fails to generate a completeness principle of the strength required to overcome these alternative dualist models. And I should say that um, I've got various other papers looking at various other defences of the causal closure principle. And again, why these standard defences of the causal closure principle don't address these non-standard forms of interactive dualism. Okay, let me begin with the problem that the completeness principle is considered to generate for interactive dualism. When we consider our relation to the physical domain, little seems more obvious than the fact that mental entities are causally relevant in this domain. Hence, for example, my desire to raise my arm seems to be causally responsible for my arms rising. It's precisely because I had this desire that my arm raised, and in normal circumstances, had I not had this desire, my arm wouldn't have raised. However, the problem of identifying a relationship between mental and physical entities that is consistent with our causal interaction and yet independently plausible 
remains unsolved. Despite a lack of agreement in the contemporary mental causation debate about how exactly this problem should be addressed, the general consensus is that dualism, regardless of whether we're here concerned with a substance dualism or an anti-physicalist property dualism, cannot provide the answer. And this is because the argument from causal labor determination, which is set out in your handout, appears to offer a straightforward rejection of all forms of interactive dualism. That is, a rejection of all forms of dualism that hold that mental entities are causally relevant in the physical domain. To explain this argument, in accordance with relevance, say that M is a mental event and that M is a complete cause of bodily event E, or alternatively, that the conjunction of M and some other event is a complete cause of E. Completeness states that every physical event that has a cause has an immediate and complete wholly physical cause. Hence, given completeness, E must also have a complete wholly physical cause, call it P. And note, a complete cause is the sum of all of the contributory or partial causes of an event in a particular instance of causation. And if each contributory cause of an event is physical, then that event has a complete wholly physical cause. The mere combination of relevance and completeness doesn't entail the identity of mental events with physical events. Given completeness, there will be a seamless causal chain of purely physical events leading up to any bodily movement. The existence of such a causal chain does not by itself exclude the existence of additional non-physical causes of bodily movement. Completeness is merely supposed to establish that to identify an immediate and complete cause of any bodily movement, we never need to look beyond the physical domain. It's only when completeness is combined with exclusion that the possibility of a physical event having a non-physical cause is ruled out. Exclusion states that there is no systematic causal overdetermination. And to give a very standard and well-known example of causal overdetermination, say that two shots are independently fired and that both bullets reach the victim at the same time. If each bullet striking was on its own a complete cause of the victim's death, the death was causally overdetermined by the strikings. Exclusion permits isolated cases of causal overdetermination, but rules out events being causally overdetermined as a general rule. The combination of relevance and completeness appears to give rise to precisely this kind of systematic causal overdetermination. Every time that M causes E, completeness guarantees that there will be an alternative, wholly physical cause that is enough to bring E about. The problem is removed if, contrary to the dualist, mental event M is identical with physical event P. Before moving on, it's worth making two clarificatory points about this argument. The first concerns my understanding of events. Although it's not essential to my argument, 
For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to take events to be Kimian. That is, to be the exemplification of a property by a substance at a time. So a mental event is the exemplification of a mental property by a substance at a time, and a physical event is the exemplification of a physical property by a substance at a time. And according to this account of events, two events are identical if and only if they involve the same property, substance, and time. It follows that both substance and property dualism entail a dualism with regard to mental and physical events, and hence that both positions directly conflict with the conclusion of the argument from causal overdetermination. The second point concerns the formulation of completeness and why it requires that every physical event that has a cause has an immediate complete wholly physical cause. What's the, the need of the, the term immediate within the completeness principle? Well, from the mere fact that M and P are both complete causes of E, it doesn't follow that E is causally overdetermined. Hence, if it were the case that P caused M, which in turn caused E, then, given the transitivity of causation, it would be true that P and M were both complete causes of E. But clearly, this wouldn't be a case of causal overdetermination. Thus, if the completeness principle was simply formulated as the claim that every physical event that has a cause has a complete wholly physical cause, then the combination of it with relevance and exclusion would be compatible with a dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance, which held that neural events caused bodily movement via mental causal intermediaries. In completeness, the requirement that every physical event that has a cause has an immediate, complete, wholly physical cause is there to rule out the possibility of there being any such gaps in causal chains of physical events for non-physical events to fill. Event C is an immediate cause of event E if C doesn't cause E by causing some further event. That is, in other words, if in the causal chain of events leading up to E, there is no event that is a causal intermediary between C and E. Now, moving on to the no-gap argument for the completeness principle. Despite the central role of the completeness principle in what is one of the most popular arguments for physicalism and against interactive dualism, detailed arguments for it are notoriously hard to find. And this is presumably because many of its proponents take it to be a fact of current physics, and hence to require a little further defence from those in the mental causation debate. However, if the principle is a working hypothesis of current physics, then it's one that's left wholly implicit. Certainly, it's not referred to in any physics textbook. Some argument is therefore needed for the claim that it is a fact of current physics. One such argument that is often alluded to in the mental causation debate, so for example, if you look at Kim, 
McLaughlin, Melnick, Papineau, they all make use of this argument. They all appeal to this idea. Um, and which, following McLaughlin, I shall refer to as the no-gap argument, can be set out as follows. Contemporary physicists have been highly successful in identifying the complete causes of various kinds of physical events. To do so, they have only needed to appeal to physical causes. Not once has it been necessary to invoke non-physical causes. It's, of course, true that current physics is not yet able to provide the complete and immediate cause of every physical event. Undoubtedly, there are physical events that have not yet been examined and physical events that have been examined but are yet to be causally explained. But it's one thing to acknowledge that there are gaps in the account that physics provides of the causes of physical events and quite another to hold that these gaps need to be filled by mental events. So, for example, Papineau states that current physics aims to account for physical effects in terms of the categories of energy, field, and space-time structure. And he reasons that while it's quite possible that these categories will need supplementation, given the kind of causes that physics demonstrates to be responsible for physical events, we have sufficient grounds for concluding that they will not need to be supplemented by mental categories. And in further support of this point, Kim observes, and this is to quote him, that if a physicist encounters a physical event for which there is no ready physical explanation um, or, if, if, or physical cause, she would consider that as an indicating a need for further research. Perhaps there are as yet undiscovered physical forces. At no point would she consider the possibility that some non-physical force outside the space-time world was the cause of this unexplained physical occurrence. Now, one might worry about extrapolating conclusions reached about the events that physics studies to bodily events. But this worry is thought to be unfounded. Indeed, a similar no-gap argument can be presented at the level of neurophysiology. And we can find this again in the writings of Kim, McLaughlin, and Melnick. The neurophysiological no-gap argument can be presented as follows. Neurophysiological research provides good grounds for holding that the causal chain of neural events that give rise to bodily movement do not contain gaps that need to be filled by mental events. The thought is not that the picture that contemporary neurophysiology presents of the causal chains of neural events that give rise to bodily movement is seamless, as clearly the causal story that current neurophysiology provides is incomplete. As with the previous argument, what is considered to be objectionable is the idea that mental events are needed to fill these gaps. Neurophysiology hints at no gaps in the causal chains of neural events that give rise to bodily movement that it would be appropriate for mental events to fill. Certainly, if a neurophysiologist discovers a neural event for which there is no ready neural cause, at no point would she consider the possibility that some non-physical event was the cause of this unexplained neural occurrence. Rather, the discoveries of neurophysiology indicate 
that if we take any instance of bodily movement, say, for example, the raising of your arm, and you trace the causal chain of events leading up to this event back from the muscle fibres contracting your arm to the electrochemical activity in your nerves to the motor neurons firing in your brain and so on, and if we could examine all of this complex causal chains of events in flawless detail, we would be presented with a seamless causal chain of purely physical events. Now, that's the no-gap argument. And the aim of this paper isn't to question the plausibility of it, although I do think it can be <coughs> questioned. Instead, it's to demonstrate that although the no-gap argument, insofar as it is correct, threatens what I refer to as standard dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance, it doesn't threaten all dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance. Indeed, the combination of completeness and exclusion is perfectly compatible with the alternative dualist models that I here have in mind. Therefore, if completeness is the strongest version of the completeness principle that can plausibly be advanced, the notion that the argument from causal overdetermination can provide a general argument against interactive dualism is misplaced. And in this section, what I'm going to do is consider some of the standard dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance that are threatened by the no-gap argument. According to what I refer to as standard dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance, the causal role of a mental event in the physical domain is to cause, either by itself or in conjunction with other mental or physical events, some physical event or set of physical events, more specifically, some neural event or set of neural events, thereby initiating a causal chain of physical events that ultimately gives rise to some movement of the limbs. The model of psychophysical causal relevance proposed by Descartes provides an obvious example of a standard dualist model. According to Descartes, the causal role of the mental in the physical domain is to alter the direction of the motion of certain particles in the brain. These motions, Descartes claimed, are communicated via nerve filaments to the limbs, giving rise to their movement. Hence, in accordance with the standard dualist model, according to Descartes, a mental event is causally relevant in the physical domain because, in conjunction with physical events, it causes some brain event. That is a certain motion of particles in the brain, which gives rise to a causal chain of physical events resulting in bodily movement. To give another example of a standard dualist model, but one from the contemporary mental causation debate, take W.D. Hart's model of psychophysical causal relevance. Hart accepts the energy transference theory of causation, according to which causation is the transfer of energy momentum from cause to effect. However, according to Hart, not all causation is the transfer of physical energy. Hart claims that psychic energy exists, and a mental event causes a neural event by transferring psychic energy to it, which is then converted into physical energy in accordance with the conservation laws. 
The mental event thereby initiates a chain of energy transference, which results in some bodily movement. Hence, in line with the standard dualist model, according to Hart, a mental event causes a neural event, thereby initiating a causal chain of physical events that brings about a bodily movement. Now, quite clearly, the no-gap argument for completeness threatens the dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance proposed by Descartes and Hart and standard dualist models more generally. All such models attempt to find a causal role for mental events in the physical domain by assuming that there is some gap in the causal chains of neural events that gives rise to certain bodily movements, a gap that can only be filled by mental events. Hence, given these models, if we take any intentional movement of the body and trace the causal chain of events leading up to this event far back enough into the brain, there will be, contrary to completeness, a physical event in this causal chain that lacks an immediate and complete wholly physical cause. But to rehearse the no-gap argument for completeness, a gap in the causal chains of neural events that give rise to bodily movement would be detectable by empirical means, and no gaps are empirically detectable that one would have any reason to think couldn't be filled by physical events. Now, a popular assumption in the mental causation debate is that the only available dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance is the standard one. That is, given dualism, the causal role of a mental event in the physical domain must be to cause some neural event or set of neural events, which ultimately gives rise to some bodily movement, and hence to fill in gaps in causal chains of neurological events. However, recent dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance challenge this assumption. And I want to sketch two. The first is one that is proposed by E.J. Lowe, and the second is one that I have recently outlined. Okay, turning to Lowe. Lowe, a substance dualist, claims that as we trace the causal chain of neural events that results in a bodily movement back into the brain, it seems likely that this causal chain will begin to display a highly complex tree-like structure that is fractal. So in other words, the branches of the trees will be smaller trees, the branches of which will be still smaller trees, and so on. And he argues that from a purely physical perspective, the fact that such a causal tree of neural events converges upon a particular event, the bodily movement, looks purely coincidental. For as physical science traces back the physical causes of a bodily movement into this maze of antecedent neural events, it loses sight of any unifying factor explaining why these apparently independent causal chains of neural events should have converged upon this bodily movement. Indeed, Lowe claims that from this purely physical perspective, the convergence <coughs> seems no less of a remarkable coincidence than if a tree were to grow from the tips of its branches to its trunk. 
Lowe maintains that it's only by appealing to the mental that this convergence of neural events can be explained. It is, Lowe claims, the specific causal role of mental events to render the fact that a causal tree of neural events converge upon a particular bodily movement non-coincidental. And it is the special intentional na nature of mental events, the fact that a mental event, unlike any neural event, is directed upon the occurrence of a particular bodily movement that makes mental events suited to play this role. Crucially, according to Lowe, mental events do not play this causal role by causing any neural event in the causal tree of neural events that give rise to bodily movement. Indeed, Lowe would consider what I have referred to as the standard dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance to be deeply unsatisfactory. This is because he doesn't consider that there is a particular neural event or set of neural events that could be picked out as being the immediate effect of a mental event, such that it would be correct to say that the mental event initiated a chain of causes that gave rise to a particular bodily movement. When a causal chain of neural events is traced back from a particular bodily movement that a mental event is assumed to have initiated, Lowe suggests that it's plausible that we will find that the causal chain will display not only a tree-like structure, but that the branches of the tree will be entwined with other causal trees of neural events that result in other distinct bodily movements. Consequently, there's nowhere that one could place a mental event within this entangled causal maze of physical events, such that it would be correct to say that this mental event initiated this particular bodily movement. Rather than suggesting that a mental event is ever the cause of any neural event or set of neural events, Lowe instead proposes that a mental event is causally responsible for the fact that a maze of neural events converge upon a particular bodily movement, the fact that there exists a causal tree of neural events culminating in this particular bodily movement. According to this suggestion, mental events don't cause physical events. Rather, mental events cause physical facts. So what basically Lowe is doing is denying the homogeneity of the causal relata. Mental and physical events cause different categories of entity in the physical domain. Lowe's dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance isn't threatened by the no-gap argument. It's consistent with the claim that the causal chains of neural events that give rise to bodily movement don't contain gaps that need to be filled by mental events. More generally, it's consistent with the claim that there are no gaps in the account that physics provides of the causes of physical events that need to be filled by mental events. And this is because, given Lowe's model, mental events don't cause physical events. Instead, mental events cause physical facts. Precisely because his model postulates no gaps in the causal chains of neurophysiological events that give rise to bodily movement, Lowe considers that the causal role that he provides mental events in the physical domain will be invisible to science. Hence, to quote him, any scientist who is to examine that situation by empirical means 
but who was restricted by his means of investigation to observing only purely physical events and causal relationships, would quite naturally come to the conclusion that the physical event has a complete and wholly physical causal explanation in terms of its immediate causes and their antecedent physical causes. So, end of quote. Um, consequently, um, the empirical findings provided by neuroscientists wouldn't allow one to discriminate between a wholly physicalist account of psychophysical causal relevance and the interactive dualist account that Lowe offers. Now, the aim of this section hasn't been to defend the dualist model that Lowe has proposed. And indeed, there are certain aspects of Lowe's model that I find worrying. And in particular, I just I can't see um, how you can give a plausible and consistent understanding of an event and a fact that would allow you to motivate a distinction between event causation and fact causation. And I have this worry regardless of whether you're basing events and facts in a one-category ontology, a two-category ontology, or those four-category ontology. But that's the topic for another paper. The aim of this section has simply been to observe that Lowe's dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance is not threatened by the no-gap argument. So one might think that sort of there are questions that can be raised about the metaphysics that's lying behind it, um, but certainly um, it, it doesn't, um, it, it, you, you can't raise the standard no-gap argument against it. Once you've accepted the distinction between event causation and fact causation, and embedded um, Lowe's account within that, you can't then um, accuse him of um, being um, falling prey to the no-gap argument. Now, I shall turn to um, my own um, dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance. Um, unlike those who accept a standard dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance, I deny that mental events cause physical events. But unlike Lowe, nor do I consider that a mental, mental events cause physical facts. I don't want to deny the homogeneity of the causal relata. I distinguish between events that cause other events and events that enable other events to be caused. And rather than causing physical events, I hold that the causal role of mental events in the physical domain is to enable physical events to be caused. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let's start with the powers theory of causation. I accept a powers theory of causation, and the model of psychophysical causal relevance that I advance isn't to be divorced from it. To explain this model, I therefore need to start by outlining this theory of causation. Um, according to the powers theory of causation, powers or dispositions, and I use these terms interchangeably, provide the basis for an account of the causal relation. And central to this theory of causation are two claims. First, all intrinsic properties bestow irreducible powers on their bearers. To maintain a powers theory of causation, you have to take powers ontologically seriously. So, for example, a porcelain vase is disposed to break when dropped on a hard surface, and given this realist stance on powers, the power to break is built into some property of the vase, and in virtue of having this property, the vase is disposed to break when dropped. Now note, if you were to take powers ontologically seriously, then it's essential that you distinguish between a disposition and its manifestations. 
A specific disposition is either actual or it isn't. To be actual, a disposition need not be manifesting any manifestation. Indeed, it need never manifest any manifestation. So a porcelain vase that is never dropped is still fragile, despite the fact that it never manifests this fragility. Unmanifesting dispositions are not, therefore, unactualized possibilia. A description which, as C.B. Martin has commented, is more fitting of unmanifested manifestations. Second, causation is just the manifestation of these powers. And this claim can be developed in various ways, giving rise to different versions of the powers theory of causation. And here I shall assume C.B. Martin's, according to which causation is the mutual manifestation of reciprocal disposition partners. To explain Martin's claim, a particular manifestation of a disposition usually depends on the presence of other dispositions. Thus, the fact that the vase breaks when it's dropped doesn't just depend on the vase being fragile, it also depends on the surface on which it lands being hard. When the vase breaks, this is therefore not just a manifestation of the vase's fragility, but also of the surface's hardness. In Martin's words, the vase's fragility and the surface's hardness are reciprocal disposition partners, and the breaking of the vase is their mutual manifestation. Note, I accept, along with Martin and others, that a disposition might and indeed often will manifest itself differently with different disposition partners. So, for example, while the surface's hardness and the vase's fragility are reciprocal disposition partners for the mutual manifestation, which is the vase's breaking, the surface's hardness and a rubber ball's bounciness are instead reciprocal disposition partners for the mutual manifestation, which is the ball bouncing. Now, causation is, according to Martin, the mutual manifestation of reciprocal disposition partners. So the porcelain vase being dropped on a hard surface causes it to break. And in such a case, the vase's breaking is the mutual manifestation of the vase's fragility and the surface's hardness. My standing on the broken pieces of the vase caused my foot to bleed. Here, my foot's bleeding is the mutual manifestation of the porcelain's sharpness and my foot's softness. The rubber ball being dropped on a hard surface causes it to bounce. Here, the ball's bouncing is the mutual manifestation of the ball's bounciness and the surface's hardness. Now, as I argue elsewhere, the powers theory of causation, along with most other theories of causation that understand causation as production as opposed to dependence, allows one to recognise a distinction between two different roles that an event might play in a causal system. The role of causing and the role of enabling a causing. That is the distinction between an event that causes another event and an event that enables an event to cause another event. The distinction between events that are causes and events that are enablers becomes apparent when one considers causal sequences involving double prevention. Double prevention occurs when an event that would prevent another event from having a certain effect 
is itself prevented from doing so. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a tongue twister. So double prevention occurs when an event, an event that would prevent another event from having a certain effect is itself prevented from doing so. So to give an example of double prevention, um, imagine that a barrier is placed in front of a porcelain vase, but that the barrier is wired up to a device which will cause the barrier to explode if a button on the device is pressed. Normally, if a rock is thrown at the vase, the barrier would prevent the rock from coming into contact with and hence breaking the vase. But if the device's button is pressed, this destroys the barrier, hence allowing the rock to hit the vase and break it. And the pressing of the button is a double preventer event. The barrier would have prevented the rock from breaking the vase, but is prevented from doing so by the pressing of the button. Given the powers theory of causation, one can offer the following account of double prevention. As well as depending on the presence of certain dispositions, the manifestation of a disposition will often depend on the absence of others. This is because one disposition may be disposed to prevent the manifestation of another. For example, the vase is disposed to break if a rock is thrown at it. However, if a barrier is placed in front of the vase, this disposition is not manifested. The solidity of the barrier prevents the mutual manifestation, that is the vase's fragility and the rock's momentum and hardness. In cases of double prevention, a disposition that is disposed to prevent the manifestation of another disposition is itself prevented from doing so by the presence of a third disposition. Hence, in the example that I've just given, the solidity of the barrier is disposed to prevent the rock from breaking the vase, but is itself prevented from doing so by the pressing of the device's button. Now, crucially, given the powers theory of causation, um, a double preventer event is not to be counted as a cause of the event that it is prevented from being prevented. And this is a pretty uncontentious um, claim amongst those who maintain the powers theory. And the reason is basically that absences can't be causes according to the powers theory of causation, for an absence cannot bear powers and hence cannot be disposed to act in any way. Given that absences aren't causes, there can't be a chain of unbroken causation from the double preventer event to the event that it is prevented from being prevented. Hence, in the above example, the pressing of the button causes the destruction of the barrier. But given the powers theory of causation, the barrier's destruction cannot in turn be a cause of the vase's breaking. For this is really just to say that the barrier's absence is a cause of the vase's breaking. Therefore, given the powers theory of causation, the pressing of the button can't be a cause of the vase's breaking. Now, although not a cause of the vase's breaking, the pressing of the button is what I call an enabling event. Given the powers theory of causation, for an event that is prevented from being prevented to be brought about, in addition to its complete cause, a further event, the double preventer event, must also exist. And this further event is an enabling event, where 
An enabling event isn't a cause of the event in question, but one which enables it to be caused, or which, in other words, provides the required structure for the relevant causal relation to take place. A double preventer event enables an event to be caused by preventing an event from preventing it from being caused. Now, although not causes, obviously enabling events are causally relevant to the events that they enable to be caused, and not just in a merely explanatory sense. In causal situations involving enabling events, for the effect to be brought about, in addition to its complete cause, a further event must occur whose role is to enable the causal relation to take place. The fact that a further event is required to enable the causal relationship to take place is quite independent of our attitudes and interests. Although, of course, in certain situations, our explanations may relegate enabling events to the background, just as in certain situations, they may relegate some of the contributory causes of an event to the background. Now, these, que these considerations raise the question, what if the dualist were to argue that mental events are causally relevant in the physical domain? Not because they cause physical events, but because they enable physical events to be caused in the sense just explained. More specifically, what if mental events are double preventers in the physical domain? To see very roughly, I, I, I emphasise very roughly, what such a dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance would look like, consider the following specific case. Assume that dualism is true, and hence that mental events aren't identical with physical events. And call the event that is neuron 1 firing in Fred's brain N1, and the event that is neuron 2 firing in his brain N2, and the event that is his arm raising B1. Say that the firing of neuron 1 is disposed to make neuron 2 fire, which is disposed to make the, muscles in, um, the muscle fibres contract in Fred's arm and his arm raise. Now, for the sake of simplicity, assume that no other dispositions are required for these manifestations. Hence, N1 causes N2, and N2 causes B1. Now, say that N2's causing B1 would be prevented by Fred's desire to keep his body still, and call this mental event M2. But also say that Fred has a conflicting desire. Although he has the desire to keep still, he also has the stronger desire to raise his arm and call this mental event M1 so that he can flick a piece of hair from his eyes. Now, having this stronger desire prevents the manifestation of his desire to keep his body still. That is, M1 prevents M2 from preventing N2 causing one. Consequently, Fred raises his arm. And this causal structure is presented in figure one of your handout. Now, in this example, M1 prevents M2 from preventing N2 causing B1. Consequently, N2 is able to cause B1. Given the powers theory of causation, for the reasons explained earlier, M1 is not a cause of B1. Rather, the complete cause of B1 is N2, and N2's complete cause is N1. However, M1 is still causally relevant to B1 because M1 enables N2 to cause B1. Now, I present this example simply to introduce the idea 
that mental events might be causally relevant in the physical domain, not because they cause physical events, but because they enable physical events to be caused. The double prevention model of psychophysical causation is one that I defend, um, develop in detail and defend from both the metaphysical and phenomenological point of view elsewhere. And in this paper, all I want to do is to consider this dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance in relation to the no-gap argument for completeness. The double prevention model is like Lowe's account, a non-standard dualist model of psychophysical causal relevance. Unlike standard dualist models, the double prevention model denies that the causal role of mental events in the physical domain is to cause some neural event or set of neural events which ultimately give rise to some bodily movement. Rather than causing any neural event, given the double prevention model, the causal role of mental events in the physical domain is to enable neural events to give rise to bodily movement. Consequently, the double prevention model isn't threatened by the no-gap argument. It doesn't imply that the causal chains of neural events that give rise to bodily movement will contain gaps that need to be filled by mental events. Hence, if you consider figure one, clearly there are no gaps in the causal chains of neurological events that cause B1. The complete cause of B1, that is the combination of all the contributory causes of B1, is N2, and its complete cause is N1. As with Lowe's model, the causal role that the double prevention model provides mental events in the physical domain will be invisible to science. Given the causal structure that I presented, if the neuroscientist traces the causal chain of events leading up to the movement of Fred's arm back from the muscle fibres contracting in his arm to the electrochemical activity in his nerves to the motor neurons firing in his brain, she would be presented with a seamless causal chain of purely physical events. And indeed, no matter how closely she examines this particular <coughs> chain of um, neurological events, the causal role that M1 plays in bringing about B1 will not be revealed. And this is because the causal role that M1 plays in bringing about B1 doesn't involve M1 acting on any physical event or set of physical events. Rather, it involves M1 acting on another non-physical event, namely M2. Nor in the causal structure presented in figure one is there any physical event or set of physical events that M2 acts upon. For the whole point is that M1 prevents M2 from preventing M2 causing B1. That is, M1 prevents M2 from acting on any physical event. Now, as an aside, what if N1 causes N2, but M1 isn't there to prevent M2 from preventing N2 from causing B1? To repeat that, what if N1 causes N2, but M1 isn't there to prevent M2 from preventing N2 from causing B1? Now, this would plausibly give rise to gaps in the causal chains of neurological events, gaps filled by mental events. Um, to be brief, in response, I've argued elsewhere that for this model to work, where there is M2 and N2, M1 must be there to prevent M2 from preventing N2 causing B1. And this would be the case if the existence of some event in the chain of neurological events that caused N2 entailed the existence of M1. Hence, for example, if the existence of N1 entailed the existence of M1. 
And this entailment relationship between N1 and M1 would be explained in a way that's fully consistent with the causal emergentism that I defend if whatever neurological event that caused N1 also caused M1. So if we imagine N0 being a joint cause of both M1 and N1. But, um, I mean, this is something, as I say, it's for a different paper, but um, it's, it's a point that one might think raise, um, leads to the sort of the gaps in, in the, the account that I offer. Now, unlike standard dualist models of psychophysical causal relevance, which commonly respond to the argument from causal overdetermination by attempting to reject completeness, and hence the no-gap argument for it, given both... Lowe's dualist model and the one that I want to advance, you can accept completeness because neither of these accounts are committed to the idea that any physical event lacks an immediate, complete, wholly physical cause. Instead, what both Lowe's dualist model and my own suggest is that the argument from causal overdetermination is invalid. If mental events are causally relevant, in the physical domain because they cause physical facts, as low claims, or because they enable physical events to be caused, as I claim, then the combination of relevance, completeness, and exclusion doesn't entail that mental events are identical to physical events. Hence, if you take the double prevention model, M1, a non-physical event, is causally relevant to B1, a physical event, because it enables B1 to be caused. Despite the fact that M1 is non-physical and causally relevant in the physical domain, this requires neither the rejection of completeness or exclusion. As observed, it doesn't require the rejection of completeness because the causal structure that has been presented doesn't entail that any physical effect lacks an immediate and complete wholly physical cause. It doesn't require the rejection of exclusion because as M1 doesn't cause B1, it doesn't threaten to causally overdetermine it. To make the argument from causal overdetermination valid, a further premise must be added to it, namely that for mental events to be causally relevant in the physical domain, mental events must cause physical events. And as I hope this paper has made plain, the rejection of this premise is what divides non-standard dualist models from standard dualist models. And it's precisely because they reject this premise that the no-gap argument presents no threat to non-standard models. Thank you. Take a break now.